Aaron Alpeter has founded two companies, ISBA, which offers expert supply chain services to startups, and Capable, a service to improve how brands and fulfillment centers work together. This episode, you will learn how to translate your current skills to a different career, what supply chains are, the secret of building a world-class sales and operations plan, as well as how to ensure your supply chain doesn't break, and so much more. My background supply chain. That's what I always have loved to do um, ever since I knew what supply chain was. To, to me, it's just this intersection between ideas and ambitions and reality, so actually getting stuff done. And um, I was at Unilever for the first five or so years of my, my career and was just really loving it, moving up pretty quickly, I was in a supply chain rotation program. And I had this itch to get into e-commerce. And so um, I you know, tried to network my way in inside Unilever to be on their e-commerce team. Um, but they said, uh, hey, you know, you can't be on the e-commerce team because you don't have e-commerce experience and you can't get e-commerce experience here. <laughs> so it was one of those things where it's like, okay, well, let me look around, see what I can do. And uh, I got connected through a, a colleague at work uh, to the founders of a company called Hubble Contacts. And um, they had just raised their seed round and, and we had a dinner and they just said, you know, so we, we've got a couple questions. Um, how do we supply chain was, was, was the question they asked. And so um, long story short, I ended up working with them first as a consultant and then um, as a, you know, as a full-time employee. And uh, I've just kind of had the startup bug ever since. And I just, I love doing things that haven't been done before, or, you know, just this, this, like I'm a builder, you know, yeah. I think there are people who um, like to go out and conquer new territory. And there are people who like to go out and hold the territory that's been conquered. I'm definitely somebody who wants to go do that white space stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and startups have been a great, a great avenue for me. Yeah. And so when you said you had that kind of gap in your experience between Unilever and, and I think it was Hubble that you said, how did you bridge that gap when you jumped between the two? Or did you feel like you already had everything you needed? You just didn't have the, the relevant experience. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, there were a lot of things that I had uh, that translated well, but there are also things I didn't have. Right. So the things that I had while well, was a good foundational supply chain background. Uh, when I was building out Hubble, it was really easy to go back and say, okay, what are, you know, what does a big Fortune 500 company do? Why do they do it? Let me build in and take these principles that are applied on a macro level and implement them in a small way. And, and I was able to build a supply chain that was kind of self-reinforcing and and uh, self-healing to some extent. Um, the things that I I didn't have um, that I had to learn and and you know sometimes painfully was just how different a startup is from a cultural perspective. And, you know, everybody talks about, you know, stability with big companies and, and there is stability in the sense that, you know, Unilever is probably going to be around in 50 years, uh, at least startups, who knows, right? Mm, like sometimes yeah. you're just, you're working on a 12 to 18 month horizon. But what I wasn't prepared for was the stability in your day to day. And so when you're at a corporate job, you kind of know, you know, what you're going to do each day, you know, the standing meetings, mm. you know, the cadences that, that pulse is, is set. And so you just kind of do it in a startup. Uh, you know, you could be uh, waking up and, and thinking you're going to go left. And then by noon, you're going, you're going right. And uh, you're just, you're constantly changing, iterating, you know, uh, working on things that you end up throwing away because the thesis changed mm. and uh, it's, it's, it's rewarding, but it can also be maddening as well. And then if you add in consulting on top of that, uh, you know, I, I work with, you know, a few different startups at any given point in time, 
And so being able to turn that off and, and understand, uh, you know, what each client needs in their particular place and not letting, you know, kind of the emotions of one run into the other. Uh, it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah. That's, sorry to jump all the way back to the kind of start of what you were saying. Yeah. For the listeners that may, may not know what supply chain is, what, what is supply chain in a kind of brief description? I know I've kind of put you on the spot there, but some people may not understand what supply chain is and the logistics of it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, other than it's broken, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the reason you don't have stuff for, for Christmas or for holidays. Um, you know, on a, on a very high meta level, supply chain is how things get done in the world. Um, if, it, if it can be made, if it, if it can be moved, anything in the physical realm, that's what it is. Um, taking a step you know, deeper, you basically break supply chain into five pillars. There's plan, make, source, deliver, and then quality is in there as the fifth one. And uh, effectively, you're, you're trying to, to figure out how things are going to happen. So how much inventory do you need to build? What factories do you need to work with? Uh, getting those things produced, getting them moved around, getting them stored, getting them delivered. All of that stuff that needs to be taken care of so that you can buy it you know, online or you can go to the store and buy it, that's, that's supply chain. Um, and there's a huge linkage between finance and customer service and, and all these sorts of things because when, when people want something, they, they want it. Yeah. And, uh, and businesses want to make money on it. And so uh, it's, it's typically uh, the number one or the number two um, source of, of spend in a company um, behind marketing. And uh, it's, it's um, vitally important. I think it was always important before the pandemic. And with the pandemic, it's just become such a critical strategic weapon and you either live or die by, by your supply chain capabilities. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's kind of following on from that. What makes a good supply chain in, in your eyes, seeing as you are the, the supply chain expert? I would say that it needs to be fit for purpose. So the supply chain that you build for Honda is going to be different from the supply chain that you build for Amazon, which is the, the supply chain that's different from Aaron's Big Shop. And so you, you kind of, you know, you don't want to just say, let me pick up and, and do this sort of thing. So there's some key principles you have to think about. Uh, resiliency, right? Can you take a punch and keep going? Uh, where are those failure points going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending on where you are in your, in your life cycle, uh, do you need something that's going to emphasize flexibility? And so you have, you know, lower fixed costs, but maybe higher variable costs. If it's something where it's kind of a set it and forget it, can you automate this so that it's, it's a very good baseline. And so uh, it, it needs to be responsive. It needs to be able to adapt and, and do what the business needs. Um, at the end of the day, your, your supply chain is just how your business works. And, you know, there's, there's no one way to run a business. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I've got a bit more of an understanding of what supply chains are and what a good supply chain is. So when you jumped into the startup world, you went to Hubble and I'm assuming you went to a few other startups. What were some of the things you saw in you know, a company starting from zero versus a Fortune 500 company that needed to be implemented in their supply chain? Yeah, kind of the, the secret sauce that, um, that I've tried to implement in each of the companies that I've helped grow and scale is, is something I wouldn't have gotten had I not come from a Fortune 500. And that's this concept of what's called SNOP planning or sales and operations planning. And um, it's, it's kind of simple on, on a high level, but it's incredibly powerful. And effectively what you do is you, you can make an Excel model, right? something that's very simple, but you're going to write down all the assumptions that you have about your business and what you think the future is going to look like over the next 
18 to 36 months. And it could be as much as, uh, you know, we think that we can acquire customers for this amount of money on Facebook and we have this amount of budget. And uh, when they buy something, they're going to order, you know, these items in this ratio and breaking it down into how many uh, items I need to produce, how many I need to hold and things like that. Um, by, by going through and, and doing this, um, first off, it's going to be wrong. <laughs> your, your forecast yeah. is always wrong. But you start to force yourself to put your money where your mouth is and to really look at these things. Because I, I think the, the biggest issue that, that companies run into, big and small, is they get surprised by their own success. They, they effectively say, you know, they, they talk to that investor, or they, they talk to themselves, say, you know what, we're going to be the next billion dollar company. And we're going to be a billion dollar company in four months. Mm. And, and then they try to, you know, it just, that's what they go for. And so they might be really good at marketing. They might be really good at finance and they'll optimize for that part of it. And then they'll be surprised about, you know, what does it actually take to, to be a million dollar company, let alone a billion dollar company. And if you start to break things down and you start to, to plan on a monthly basis for a rolling 18 to 36 months, it's less about what do I need to produce this month and how am I going to hit this month's numbers, but you start to look at this overall trajectory and you can start to ask questions about, uh, you know, am I in the right factory? Do I have the right fulfillment center? Do I have the right product mix? Do I have the right you know, budget in order to go out and market things? And so it's, it's this super simple, but super powerful thing that lets you have a version of the future. And then, you know, you know, that's going to be wrong. The next month you do it, uh, you're going to learn something. You're going to say, okay, we're going to tweak this and, and get there. And as you start to do this, as you start to have these reps, then suddenly you get to a point where um, you, you can see things coming and, and your supply chain, um, it's, it's very clear what you need to work on. And it no longer becomes a bottleneck for your growth. It becomes something that enables you, right? Because you want your marketing team to try to break your supply chain with growth. And you want your supply chain team to you know, not let that happen and, and just always be at least one step ahead of, of where the business is going. Yeah, because a recent example I've come across is, I don't know if you know about oat milk and all this kind of stuff. There's a company oh, yeah. called Oatly and they are somewhere in Europe. They're based somewhere in Europe, but they've expanded over to the US and they jumped into Starbucks and like a few other, you know, coffee shops and they couldn't supply enough of this oat milk to the, to the end, to the end user, which would be Starbucks. And I was just a bit like, well, why, why can't you just make more? And it's like, I guess for someone like you, that, that supply chain, you look at it and go, well, you've, you've put, you've over expanded yourself. You've got too much going on. You're not making it close enough to source and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's a whole host of reasons why things could go wrong. You know, maybe they misunderstood the demand. Um, maybe it was a manufacturing thing. Maybe it was a transportation thing. It was a raw material thing. There's, there's so many things that are there. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to sit here and cast stones and say, you know, somebody screwed up somewhere. Um, and, you know, to, to be fair to Oatly, there's, there's probably a lot of things that they did right. Mm. You know, they, they were able to sell in, but you know, they are where they are now. And it's, it's one of these things where, you know, they have to figure out how they're going to catch up and, and regain that market share. Yeah. Um, they've effectively created a, a great market for oat milk. Um, it's a shame if it's not going to be them to capitalize on. Yeah. So just a minute ago, you said about having your, you know, it would be ideal if your marketing team could try to break your supply chain and the supply chain stayed resistant. And obviously working in startups, everybody wants that hockey stick kind of growth. Everybody wants it to go from zero to a hundred in, you know, like you said earlier, like four months, three months, whatever. Do you have an example of a time where that kind of did happen where, you know, some kind of mad growth spike happened? And your supply chain was a bit wobbly and you managed to keep it going or you had to kind of troubleshoot some things. 
Yeah. Um, one of the companies that, that I've been um, fortunate to work with for a few years is a company called Mirror. It's a the fitness, fitness device. Yeah. 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 So I've been there for about three years and helped um, lead the supply chain. And uh, as you can imagine, COVID was um, was pretty good for connected fitness. Yeah. There was a lot of growth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that was a crazy time. You know, we we were hitting this moment as a company where, um, you know, we were, th- this was it, right? This is what we had trained for. This is what we wanted. And uh, trying to, you know, 4X, 5X, 6X, a supply chain with long lead times during a pandemic um, was was something I should write a book about one day. It was it was crazy, <laughs> um, but we were able to do it. And uh, you know we we you know it all comes down to making sure you can present the trade offs and say here's here's what we can do now. Here's the doors that this opens. Here's the doors that this closes. And uh, we were able to do a lot of things so that uh, you know Mirror could fulfill its potential and and grow uh, to the point that it needed to be. And Ultimately, it was acquired by by Lululemon for five hundred million dollars. Yeah. So, what was something that kind of you know struck in the pandemic? Because I I know a lot of companies have suffered with not being able to get like microchips or transistors and all that kind of stuff. Was was that kind of a similar thing for Mira? Or was it was it kind of like they were already pre made and they just needed to make it from the warehouse to the user? No, you know, there's there's a lot of um, so so I mean every company is impacted by by the supply chain stuff. There's, there's, uh, you know, there's no company out there that doesn't have freight issues or doesn't have chip issues. Um, I think that, you know, one of the interesting things is that 80% of the headaches that you have as a business come to your supply chain design. Mm. Right. And so, uh, there are some companies that, that chose to assemble their products, uh, in Asia and, uh, and, you know, slightly lower cost structure there, uh, which means you're putting finished goods on a boat. And even uh, getting them to the customer, uh, there are other companies that decided to put that in, in Mexico or, mm. or you know North America, and uh, you might pay a little bit higher on the labor side, but you know you're closer to the consumer. Um, you know that that's kind of a key decision that people can look at. And so, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and, and the folks that were uh, were sourcing from overseas, uh, such as you know Peloton, um, were were air freighting and, and were really stuck because they had all these finished goods that people wanted. That were sitting off the coast of, of uh, California, not being able to be imported, um, whereas other companies that were assembling in Mexico, um, you know, still had to, to deal with the issues to get the components in. Um, but components are easier to air freight and move in in different ways than than full units. And so, you kind of have that flexibility and dexterity so that you're you, you close that cycle time. Um, what's coming in? Okay, all right, and so. I guess over the pandemic, had you started ISBA yet or was ISBA something that you started before the pandemic? Like That's always kind of an interesting point now, I guess, for founders is a lot of people started things in the pandemic. A lot of other people had to survive through the pandemic. You know, it's it's, it's just it is what it is. But also it's just an interesting point for, for me of how someone started their company. Yeah, it started uh, ISBA in, I believe it was 2018. OK. Summer of 2018. Yeah, and, and I um, I'd worked at a number of startups as a consultant or a you know a C-suite person, and I, I recognized that that there was this huge gap that people really needed operational expertise, um, and you know it was it was really easy to be an operations consultant or an operations guy. Uh, typically, what happens is if you've got any experience, you might kind of consult for a bit, find the job that you want, kind of a consult to hire sort of model um, exists there. Um, but I was looking and, and there were all of these fractional CFO companies or 
you know, other marketing firms, fractional CMO companies. And uh, there really wasn't anything like that for supply chain. And, uh, and so, you know, looking at, at this and saying, well, people definitely need the skill set. And then similar, they don't need the skill set, you know, 50 hours a week, you know, individually. They, they, they tend to, to need things to be set up or to be scaled or to fixed. Uh, and then, um, and then, you know, this person either gets bored or they move on or, or something like that. And so I intentionally set out and said, okay, let, let's just try this thesis. Let's see if we can build a, a firm that is all about supply chain consulting, outsourcing and technology, um, you know, focus on startups. And, uh, you know, initially it was, it was just me and it was this idea of a fractional COO, which, which basically meant that I was running three or four companies at, at a single point in time, which worked, worked fine. Um, but then we wanted to grow beyond that. And, uh, you know, where can we come in and, and augment people's teams and, and help them scale and things like that. And we've, we've kind of, you know, fallen into this model, which is, is really rewarding, um, both, um, you know, personally, and then for, for the clients that we work with, where we, we will come in and we'll, we'll do a project. Um, we're very selective um, about who we work with and make sure there's a good fit on both sides, but we'll start with a project. It'll be a very, you know, defined thing of, Hey, I've got this problem, this thing I need to fix. And uh, we will, you know, knock out of the park to know each other a little bit more. And then usually what happens is we flip into some sort of ongoing month-to-month retainer. We can turn this retainer up or turn it down. And we, we augment uh, you know, these startups teams. This can mean that we are completely their supply chain team um, if they don't really have a supply chain team. Um, it could mean that we are working uh, with existing folks that they have, either to train them up or to, to be an extra pair of hands. But really what we do over time is uh, we come in, we provide the expertise, we stabilize, we scale. And as their business uh, becomes a little bit more stable in some areas, we'll actually recruit and and hire full-time employees for the company Mm. uh, that work under us. So they'll report to us. Then eventually we'll hire people who we report to. And the whole idea is that when we're done working with a company over, you know, could be months, could be years. Usually it's it's years in this case. um, We want to leave behind a very, very strong internal supply chain team so that they're world-class and able to grow and and we're able to help with those uh, those projects, those those interesting, difficult things that pop up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can see the, the use case for that because one thing that you've kind of said, but I don't know if you said it explicitly, is you have to be aware of the opportunities that are open to you because I've definitely seen the fractional marketing stuff and the fractional CFO stuff because these are roles that are, you know, they're there for a startup, but they're not always necessary. So for you to see that, oh, why is there nothing like this for supply chain? And, you know, it's kind of working out and it, it's, being something that you can do that's an amazing like talent because a lot of people tend to be just be like head down focus but to be able to look up and see what's around you and go oh there's a need for that over there like you know a pat on the back for yourself Aaron because that's that's an amazing thing to do well I don't know it was either a really good idea or a really bad idea um, <laughs> so, these, these things either don't exist because nobody thought of it or people did think of it and it didn't work out um. <laughs> fair enough so how well, obviously you were working in supply chain and, and that's where you kind of would have started off with the idea. But how did you get into this mindset of being able to, to view the world or the working space in, a, in an open way rather than just focusing on your job? Like what made you want to kind of look up away from things and see the lands, the work landscape for what it is? You know, I think that one of the things that I learned um, transitioning from a Fortune 500 to startups is, is your, your frame of reference and your mindset shifts. Um, when I was in a big company, you know, there's this hierarchy, there's this worldview that everybody has and, and you, 
you know, you want to get to work level 2B and you want to, you know, there's this person who's a, you know, director or a VP, you know, and, and angels sing their praises because they're a VP, you know, there's all this sort of stuff that you can kind of see. And it was interesting that uh, when, when I left, that worldview was no longer valid for me. Yeah. Right? These people still had those roles, but their roles didn't define them. Mm. And I actually have uh, several people who uh, I used to to report to or work for who are now friends, yeah. right? Like, you know, we, we're, we, we see each other as peers and, you know, I'm impressed with them. They're impressed with me. And it's this, this mutual respect thing that uh, when you are, a, you know, a supervisor subordinate sort of relationship is a little bit different. And so that, that kind of change, and then just getting into startups in general, you start to see things and say, wow, you know, there are some really, really cool things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's some really smart people that are out there. Um, and, you know, my, my wife always teases me where, you know, we'll be on Shark Tank or we'll see uh, an ad in the subway or we'll see something on TV. And she's like, hey, how are you connected to these guys on LinkedIn? And it's usually like, you know, second connection or mm. first connection of these founders or people who have done some cool things. And so I think just being around people who, you know, are willing to say, you know, I, I can make my own worldview and I can be um, valued more by what I create versus what job title I hold that rubs off on you. And you're kind of like, you know what? Yeah. Like, even if I don't know how to do this today, I, I think I can figure it out. Let's try it. Let's find other people who, who want to give it a shot. Yeah. And well, in the spirit of trying, can you give me an example of a, a time where you tried something and it may not have worked? Like at, what would you have done differently there? That type of thing. I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's just out of curiosity. Yeah. I mean, I've made, dozens and thousands of mistakes at this point right yeah so you know there's there's everything from uh you know how to build a company and when to build you know because you, you kind of have to to make sure that um the the org structure is fit for where you are I, I know you know one thing that i was just talking about with somebody uh, the other day was you know when we had uh two or three people in the company we, we wanted to lay out and say all right what are the work levels we're going to have and what are the roles that we're going to have and what's the you know, how are we going to grow and scale and have a plan here? And we spent a, a lot of time on that and that, you know, it made sense. And then we promptly didn't look at it because the business wasn't ready for that level of, of sophistication. Hmm. Now that we're, you know, over 20 people, um, those plans make sense now. And so I think timing is is a big part of it. Um, you know, I think one of the big things that I've learned just as I've transitioned from, uh, you know, big companies to small companies is is the role of the supply chain person. In a big company, you know, you're there to protect the status quo um, because everything's been optimized to be as efficient as possible. And so you find yourself, um, you know, saying no whenever somebody wants to do something that doesn't quite fit the process yeah, um, or doesn't quite fit what you've done. And in a startup, that's not what you're doing. Like you're, you're there because you're doing something that nobody's done before. And so the really the mindset is going from saying no to saying yes, but mm. right. And, and presenting the, the, the trade-off. If you know a founder wanted to put a twenty dollar bill on uh, on every uh, item that shipped out, you could do that, mm. right? There's there's nothing that physically prevents you from doing that, but you know there's going to be some other ramifications that you have to think about, and, and maybe it's not worth it for the objective that's there. So kind of shifting this mindset from always saying no and being first to say no to listening, understanding the objective, and saying, well, here's how we could do it. Here's you know the trade offs that we make. Uh, and this would be my recommendation if we do it or don't do it. Yeah. Uh, what's the way you can get kind of creative or think out of the box with supply chain? Like you said about putting a $20 bill on top of things. So 
once again, I'm just kind of curious about what, what that would look like. Yeah, there's um, there's a, a well-known um, dog food company in the U.S. that um, started out in an apartment, moved to a commercial kitchen, and uh, they they put labels on on every dog food package that was going out for your dog. So if you have a dog, you know, named Fido, mm. uh, they would put Fido's food, like the a label that says Fido's food, right. on that package that goes out. Yeah. And as you imagine, that's probably easy to do when you've got five or ten customers. Yeah. Um, much more difficult when you've got thousands or tens of thousands. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's this element here of, you know, when you're trying to, the point of supply chain is to enable the business, right? Yeah. And when the business is pivoting and trying to figure out ways to get that product market fit, mm-hmm. you have to figure those things out. And, and, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to do things now that aren't going to scale that, you know, will be a problem for you six or 12 months in the future, but that's six or 12 months from now. Like, you know, can you actually pull it off now? And at what point does it start to break and then start pushing yourself, uh, you know, to, to figure out how you can prevent that from actually breaking. And, and maybe what you thought was going to break in six months gets pushed to 12 months or 18 months. And you start to just figure things out that way. Okay. So a lot of these kind of supply chain, you know, things you can do and all that are, are good in the start, but in the end, it becomes something that's a bit, a bit difficult to do. Cause I'm sure a lot of small business owners, they, they really care about, you know, say the packaging of their products. So they want to kind of be like, Oh, in this box, I'm going to put a couple bits of candy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put tissue paper. And it's like, I'm guessing, I'm sure time of, of like, you know, getting something from ordered to, de- to delivered is, is very kind of important in supply chain, but as a lot of small business owners want to try align themselves with the bigger machine, there's, there's kind of that middle ground of you, you spend a lot of time putting the, you know, the product in the box or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's trade-offs to all of this. Um, typically, you know, it's, it's not time that you worry about its cost. And so, um, you know, you could have someone and I, I've seen this done before is, is you want, um, you know, calligraphy written, uh, on a, a piece of paper that has wildflowers in it so that mm. when it goes in the landfill, it, it sprouts flowers. Like you can do all of these things. These things exist. Like it's not a question of can you do it because you can do anything, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if you wanted to, to have your products all go on a SpaceX rocket up to the, up to space and come back down. So you could say that, you know, whatever product your was has is from outer space. You can do that. Mm-hmm. Right there's a cost to that. And there's the question of, is it, is it worth that cost? Is it worth that trade-off? And, and again, as supply chain, our, our job isn't to tell you necessarily uh, if it's a good idea or a bad idea, it's to give you the trade-offs and to say, we could do it. Here's what we do. Here's my opinion. Mm. Um, my opinion isn't that, it, it, you know, people aren't really going to care if their stuff goes up to space or not. Um, but uh, you know, if, if the business makes a different decision, it's our responsibility to make it happen. Yeah. And, and so with having, you know, a good supply chain set up and being creative and all this kind of stuff, what types of things would help your startup to scale? Because I'm not, I'm not sure whether or not that's something that kind of happens with supply chain where you help a company scale, or if that's just something that you just personally have knowledge on. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what we do is um, we help launch and, and, and scale companies. And so, you know, scaling can look Anything from, hey, I'm doing 100 orders a day. I want to get to 10,000. It could be, you know, I'm only in this country. I want to get into this market. Um, it could be new products. It could be new sales channels. Um, it could just be the, the operational complexity that comes with, with these sorts of things. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it, for me, it really comes down to that sales and operations planning. 
Um, and even if you don't do it well, as long as you do it, mm. you're going to be, you're going to have a leg up um, from, from companies that don't do it. Um, because you're able to, you know, it takes time to make things. It takes time to move things around. And uh, when you, when you don't have time to give, you have to end up giving on cost or on quality. And, and sometimes you can't, you can't make that trade. And so if you can give a little bit of a heads up and say, Hey, based on what we think we're going to do, what we're willing to spend, how we think we're going to grow and change, I'm going to outgrow my factory in nine months from now. Well, I can start working on that now. And I can do those qualifications so that, you know, when we achieve our marketing plan, we're ready to go and, and here's what we can do. Um, similarly, you know, if, if you come to the business and say, okay, I, I see your forecast in order to do that, I need to spend $5 million right now to build a new line. So it's operational in six months. They may look at it and say, mm, we don't really, we don't believe in our forecast enough to say we're going to spend $5 million. So yeah. like, let's actually tamper those expectations. So it's, it's a bit of a check at the same time. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so for you, when you, when you started ISBA, I'm assuming you started from, you know, zero, like maybe, maybe you had a few connections out there and you thought, right, I can supply my services to those people. Or, you know, I can put the company in a place where I was before, but how would you go about, or how did you go about getting your, your first few clients? Like, were you mainly online or was it you know, based on years of experience? Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky enough to know, um, some, some fantastic people that were willing to make introductions and, and uh, I lived um, just outside New York City at the time and uh, would, would go in every day for 12 to 16 hours and just try to network and meet people as best as I could. And it would be trying to offer as much free advice as I could to try to show some expertise uh, and then, you know, try to offer her up and say, okay, I, you know, I, I hear this problem. I think I can fix it. Let's figure out how, you know, what that looks like. And, uh, you know, there were days or weeks where I'd go around and I would just talk to people and wouldn't really have much to, to show for it. Mm. Um, and uh, those were tough, right? Like, I yeah. think anytime you're starting a company or you're, you're doing something that's new, um, it can feel very alone sometimes. You can, it, it, it's also funny because uh, anytime you talk to an entrepreneur or you talk to a startup founder, uh, you say, how's it going? Like, oh, it's great. You know, things yeah. are great it's fantastic you know? little do they know everything is going to absolute shit right now <laughs> well it, it's 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 odd because it, it kind of creates this persona where you know you feel like you have to say everything's fine because you don't know if they're a, a future client or their future investor and so you want to you know put those vibes out to the universe but you know every time there's a there's a founder that talks to me it's like hey it really sucks right now mm. like i'm not sleeping well you know, I'm, I'm not eating well. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried about, you know, our next fundraise. I say, you know, thank you for being honest. Cause like, we all feel this way mm. and uh, you know, it, it, um, it can be a very difficult, lonely place sometimes, but that's why it's important to have people you can talk to people who, you know, other founders, other people who, who you know, the, know the space that you can just kind of vent and share and say, you know, how did you solve this problem? And so um yeah, I'm, I'm really big on just trying to pay it forward and, and share advice and, and you know, um, it, try, trying to help folks as much as they can, whether or not it, it turns into some sort of, you know, monetary thing at the, the instant. So, Aaron, when you when you were going around kind of spreading your expertise all over the, the New York State area or New York City area, was it just you or did you have a co-founder at that point? Because I, I know a lot of people talk about the power of having a co-founder and how that might help, but I'm assuming you didn't from the sounds of it. 
Yeah. You know, if, um, if I could do one thing over again, it would, it would to be, a have a co-founder. Mm. Um, you know, if, if there was one person that filled that role, it was my wife. Mm. <laughs> we had, uh, we had a, just, a, our young daughter at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out here without another job. And it's kind of like, she, she just said, look, um, I, I love you. Let's try this out. Um, we can survive on savings and, and on her salary for a little while. And so let's just, let's just try it. And so she encouraged me to go do it, picked me up when I was feeling low. And, you know, the, the great thing about, uh, uh, about, you know, a spouse is that you can be completely honest with them in yeah. most cases. And, and you can say, Hey, yeah, uh, you know, today really sucked, you know? Mm. And so, um, she, she filled that role from an emotional perspective, but, um, you know, certainly since then we've, we've brought on some amazing people, um, who, you know, are still with ISBA or, or who have since moved on that have just been instrumental in the development as, as we've gone through. And, um, we're in this exciting new phase where, um, you know, we, we, you know, I'm able to delegate more and more of the decision-making, the leadership and, and, um, you know, while they're not co-founders in the sense of, you know, having that title, there's people who've been with us for, for years that, um, you know, we wouldn't be where we are without them. Yeah. And as you're, as you're building and, and scaling your company, obviously as a supply chains person, I'm assuming you might view a, vis- a business as a supply chain of its own. So the hiring process, like if I hire this person, it allows me to get this thing done. If I hire that person, it allows me to get that thing done. So what was your kind of thought process of, right, I have all these skills. I need to hire X person to do Y thing. Like what, what type of person did you hire and what was your thinking behind that? One of the decisions that um, that I made early on was that when we were going to scale the consulting business, we were going to do so with full-time employees versus mm. contractors. Yeah. Um, most other companies that do this go the contractor route, mm-hmm. um, which makes a lot of sense. You get variable costing, variable pricing, mm-hmm. uh, and you effectively act as a as a, a lead gen funnel for mm. the work that they're doing, and, and that kind of works. Um, I, I wanted to build something that was uniquely different, that had its distinct culture mm-hmm. and where people were focused on building something more than just, just an individual, you know, client or, or work that was going on. And so um, basically what, what we had to do was make a decision early on to say, okay, what can I afford? Mm-hmm. Right. What's the skill set that I can afford? Yeah. And uh, you know, it, it it may have been a different type of skill set. Say, okay, um, right now, initially, the first hires are going to be people who can offload work that I'm doing today, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm going to think about, uh, you know, all the work. I'm going to still be the main person, the main point of contact, and let me just, you know, train them how to do this analysis or train them, you know, how to do these certain things. And so, uh, you know, our, our first hire, would, you know, she was fantastic, and she was kind of saying like. All right, I'll, I'll book meetings for you. I'll get you lunch. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> whatever you need, I'm here. Yeah. And uh, and since then, we've we've gone through where we're we're starting to um, be at a point where we can pay um, really really competitive salaries and and you know be really aggressive and bring in expertise where people don't need a whole lot of of help and they you know they've either done consulting before they've done this before and they we kind of bring them in and and uh, you know orient you do some orientation for a week or two and they're like okay I got it cool. And they're off and running and they're leading clients and leading people. And so, it, again, it, just as your supply chain needs to be fit for your business at the time, I think your hiring plan needs to be fit for the skill sets that you need. Um, had, had we tried to hire those people earlier on uh, who could be completely autonomous, one, I don't think we could have afforded them. Uh, and, and then two, you know, our, just the business wasn't ready for them. Yeah. 
and in the in the idea of building and scaling and, and first highs and early stage stuff within isba you've seen a, a need for another type of product or another type of service which is capable or capable i don't i don't know how you're pronouncing it but capable capable <laughs> so what kind of madman are you aaron to found two companies at the same time what what was the kind of thinking behind that you know i i, I should uh, i probably need therapy with, uh, <laughs> with everything that's going on but um you know what we found was that um, so, so just a background in capable, we, every e-commerce company that's out there mm. has in, in most cases has a third party fulfillment center that is, um, shipping their products out. And every one of these, these fulfillment centers has a contract that you sign. And a core part of that contract is how well, or how quickly they're going to ship out orders once they receive them. Right. Mm-hmm. So it might be something that says, you know, we're going to ship next day or if we receive it by 2 p.m. It's going to ship same day. And uh, these, these SLAs are core to, to how a contract is negotiated. It's core to the pricing. Um, but what we found you know, as a consultancy is that there was no easy way to actually measure these things. Right? Uh, you, you basically had one of three options. The first one was that the fulfillment center had to spend you know, their labor or their, their dev hours to you know, create a scorecard or create these metrics. Um, in which case the brand was usually saying, well, they're grading their own test. I don't know if I really trust their methodology or if I trust their, their data. Mm. Uh, the second option was that uh, the brand or the, you know, would have to, to create this, these metrics. Um, and, you know, the fulfillment centers didn't like this because it was, you know, uh, two dozen different types of scorecards and different methodologies. And, you, you know, the brand didn't like it because it was spending time uh, you know, they could be doing other things and, you know, depending on how well people are with Excel, like it could, it could break down. Um, or the third option is you just don't measure it. Right. And so you have something where it's, it's the absolute core of why you're working together and you're not measuring it. Yeah. And so you effectively are using your end consumers as quality control yeah. for, for the fulfillment center and everybody wants to do a good job, but you know, there's, there's no way to, uh, to really measure this. And so, you know, we, we were saying this as a consultancy and we were solving this problem over and over again and said, mm-hmm. okay, well, this seems stupid. Yeah. Um, you know, we initially built some stuff internally and, and we're asking other people to make something like this. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, like we'll, we'll think about that. And uh, after about a year and a half of having an internal scorecard, we said, screw it, we're going to do this ourselves. Mm. And so um, we, uh, you know, had honed the methodology. We, we had, uh, we knew what we needed to do. We put it into a, a public facing app. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what we have today is, is something that connects in and, and is a, you know, our, our job is, is to help keep score, not to take sides. And so think yeah. of us as, as the referee, um, you know, between the fulfillment center and the brand. So, and both feed each other. So ISBA is kind of feeding capable and capable feeds ISBA because they, they both kind of need to exist to, to kind of work together. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're completely separate companies. Yeah. Um, but obviously the experience and expertise from one uh, influences the other and, and you know makes them better okay and okay so as the founder of two companies at the same time you know how do you learn about things like do you read books do you kind of just meet people in in life and learn from them like I'm, I'm always curious how founders learn or kind of stimulate that itch that that itch in the back of your head that makes you want to start things because maybe not not every person in the world has entrepreneurial aspirations or kind of founder mentality but for you to have found 
two companies and be running both, you know, I'm going to say this successfully at the same time, you must have a place that you learn or a place that you kind of use to enhance your knowledge. Man, that's a great question. I don't know if I have any single one place. I mean, I, I love to do supply chain. And mm. so the first thing that I do is I just, I learn, right? So I have a full consulting load, um, you know, on, on top of, of things. And so, you know, I'm, I'm running, you know, a very large supply chain today. And so, you know, the things that I, I learned from there and, and the experiences and the, and the challenges, you know, help me think about things. And, you know, it, the, the great thing about consulting is that when you, when you are working with client A, you remember something from client B that can help client A, and then that influences client C. And so they can be completely unrelated, right? You could be looking at medical devices, consumer electronics, and food. And uh, in those principles and how you're solving things or the context you make, uh, it's just kind of this upward spiral. And so I'd say the first thing I do is, is I learn by doing. Um, the second thing is I, I, I learn by listening. And so, you know, I'm, I'm learning stuff from this conversation and, and you know, I'll, I'll take it into the other conversations we'll have later today and, and those will percolate through. Um, and, and then, you know, last thing is I, I do like to read. I like to, you know, watch, watch videos or, yeah. or just find interesting books and just see how people are thinking. Um, and, you know, one of the, the challenges I have is it's very hard for me to turn my brain off with this. And um, I'm, I'm always getting in trouble um, with, with, with my wife and my kids because uh, I, you know, I have workaholic tendencies. Mm. Um, and the problem is, is I, I love what I do. And yeah. so it's, it's kind of fun. And, you know, um, just this last weekend, we, my wife and I were chatting, she's like, well, what do you want to, what do you want to do this weekend? And, you know, the right answer is like, well, let's, let's go outside. Let's play with the kids. Let's, you know, do something around the house. And in my mind, I'm like, Hey, I want to like figure out the supply chain thing. I want to <laughs> do this thing. And, you know, she just rolls her eyes at me and says, no. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a good thing that you have passion for it and, and it's what you want to do because I feel like maybe most people don't find that in their life. But you said you like to, to read. Is it like business books you're reading or is it like you're reading like, I don't know, like weird Eastern European poetry or something? <laughs> um, mainly business books. You know, I think it's, uh, I, I just like to learn from people's perspectives and, and what they're doing. I mean, you know, right now I'm reading a book um, from Ray Dalio about oh, don't say you're reading the new principles book, the the rise and fall of nations. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I I just got it. Week. I just got it. Oh, <laughs> excited to start it. It's it's pretty good. Um, you know, and, and that's one that like okay, I'm not necessarily going to, uh, you know, start investing the way that he's doing, but it's it's um it, it's one of those books that you read and it changes your worldview a little bit and mm -hmm. you start to see things in a, in a longer time horizon, mm -hmm. which is, I think is helpful. And so I, I really enjoy finding things like that. But Yeah. Okay. I, I have the same itch as you can tell. Like I, I have no interest in being like Ray Dalio at all, but something about reading about someone as smart as him and as successful as him is, is really kind of interesting. So do you have any kind of favorites or books you might recommend to the listeners? Cause I know everybody who likes to read does have one that sticks out. You know, I would say that the one book that, that I read that was really transformative for, um, for, for my thinking and like building these companies is a book called 22 Assets. Okay. And it's a, it's a relatively quick um, read, but the, the basic takeaways that I took from it was that anything, anytime that there is something that doesn't go well in your business, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody screwed up, uh, you lost a client, um, you know, it was highly stressful, things like mm -hmm. that. It's not because somebody screwed up. It's because you don't have the assets in place 
to allow for that. And so an asset could be a template. It could be an automation. It could be, uh, you know, some sort of check or quality control. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that's been something that's been kind of core to what we've been looking at. And, you know, when you have free time, what are you spending your time on? Are, are you, you know, are you mindlessly uh, emailing people on LinkedIn saying, you know, hey, give me business, mm. which there's a time and place for that. Or are you thinking about and saying, this, okay, what, what can I do um, to build that's going to have, it's going to live beyond this moment, right? Yeah. So um, I, I could write an article, I could be on a podcast, I could do other things here that could linger and can help, um, you know, build up whatever objectives I've got. Yeah. Okay. I'm assuming you read all the time, you know, you read a lot of books because, you know, that's kind of like the, the one time you can switch your mind off from work. Is there anything else you do to kind of switch your mind off from work? Do you have any kind of like hobbies or anything like that? I, I love hanging out with my kids. Um, okay. They're a lot of fun. Um, I like to be outside. Um, I have a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old yeah. and uh, they they love to, to wrestle with me. Um, so sometimes I won't be quite done with work, but they'll just come attack me. And so um, they're getting bigger and stronger too. So they're, uh, we're going to have to probably find a new outlet. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I, my last question for you, Aaron, is a, a fairly simple one. And one that most of my guests tend to sit back and think and go, Hmm, but what is it that brings you the most joy in your line of work? I, I love the, I love the look in people's eyes when you are able to help them achieve what they want to achieve, right? Whether that be, you know, developing and mentoring or launching a company. And I, I just, I love being able to, uh, to, to be an expert and to share this expertise and it, for it to really help people, right? Because what I found is when you're working with startups, you're not really working with companies so much as you're working with somebody's dream, mm. right? Somebody just decided that they were willing to jump off the deep end and, and potentially incur a whole lot of emotional or psychological pain because they felt that something needed to exist. And, and maybe they needed to exist so they can make a lot of money. Maybe it was uh, something about values. Maybe it was something about even just the passion they had. But you know, each of these founders that I talked to, they they really they really want this to work for for whatever reason support to them. Yeah. And when you're able to to see them at their roadblock and break it down and talk through and say, you know, here's here's how you do it. Here's what you can do. And whether you do it or, or I help you, like this is, you know, what the outcome could be. Um, there's just there's just this amazing, you know, feeling that you get. And I've actually had uh, a couple people that broke down in tears when we told them how to solve their problem because it's something that they've been, uh, you know running up against for for several months prior to, to speaking with us a few more words from aaron three ways to kind of get in touch uh i'm on linkedin just aaron Allpeter. uh so feel free to make a connection say you know you heard me on, on sam's podcast and uh, happy to to kind of connect and share advice that way um check out isba izba.co um, for information on the consulting company we do offer free supply chain audits and so uh if you're an up and coming brand and just want a second pair of eyes, uh, you can uh, schedule that way. And then uh, capable, C-A-P-A-B-L uh, dot C-O. Uh, we are offering a, a two week free trial uh, on the service. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.